Who would have ever thought that Hot Wheels cars, old Hot Wheels cars, could be worth millions of dollars? Certainly not me. I mean, one little Hot Wheels car is worth $150,000. I'm talking about a little toy car that you hold in your hand. Well, you learned all about that in part one of this Tech You Should Know podcast. Well, this is part two, and we're going to talk about sports memorabilia. Just so you know, you don't have to be an athlete or even a sports fan to make bank off these items. In fact, the most famous baseball card collector of all time never even went to a baseball game. Well, at least that's how the legend goes. Well, in this episode, we're going to take you to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. This is amazing. And that's where we're going to find one of the oldest and best preserved baseball card collections in the entire world. The public can see cards from the late 1800s. We're going to tell you about this fascinating figure in American history and what we can all learn from. You're also going to get even more tips on how to find collectibles and how to recognize when you've got something that could break in a lot of dough. And there's so much more that we're going to cover. After that, we're going to talk with a million-dollar collector who almost lost everything. He's a famous sports memorabilia collector who's going to give us the inside scoop on collecting. So stick around. We've got a ton of great stuff coming your way, and you don't want to miss a moment. Ah, baseball. It's the quintessential American sport. It goes back almost 200 years. That's when you know sports got enduring appeal. Heck, even virtual people like it. That's right, you heard me correctly. Now, if you're not a fan of baseball, you may not have heard about the virtual fans popping up at stadiums. It's an idea that Fox Sports came up with as a way to make Major League Baseball games seem, well, as close to normal as possible. After all, the pandemic means this season was cut short, and people certainly can't clump together in close crowds to watch the games right now. So thanks to the magic of AR graphics and Unreal Engine, virtual fans just pop up on the sidelines, and they also show up on TV screens of baseball fans across the country. Now, it wasn't quite a home run. Actually, lots of folks who watched the games on TV were pretty unnerved by the fake people in the stands. But isn't it fascinating to see how changing technology impacts the way that we see and experience sports? One way that you can really see this evolution in real time is by checking out baseball cards. So these cards first showed up around the American Civil War. By the late 1860s, a sporting goods company called Peck and Snyder created the first true baseball cards. They were pretty rare back then, since cameras weren't exactly common. Back in 2009, there was an auction for the very first baseball card ever produced. You want to guess how much it made? Listen to this. According to auction report. This card sold for a net worth of one and a half million dollars. Okay, it's not likely that you have a card from nearly 200 years ago sitting in your house, but if you're a card collector, there's a good chance you've got something valuable. I'm going to teach you all about baseball cards and why they're valuable. So Bruce told us early all about the value of nostalgia. We spoke about how good memories and strong brand recognition can draw collectors in, but there are other factors too artistic and historical value. Now, to learn about this, we're going to head over to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. It's America's largest museum, and it has an entire exhibit dedicated to just American baseball cards. Hey, take me out to the ball game. Take 
me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home. I'd like to give a warm welcome to Alison Rednick. She's the Associate Curator of the Museum's Department of Drawings and Prints. And currently, she looks over the Jefferson R. Burdick Collection. So, does that name ring a bell? He is known as the father of baseball card collecting. I mean, this is probably something that's going to come up in a Jeopardy game someday. And he donated his entire collection to the museum. So, Allison, can you tell us how Jefferson Burdick earned this superstar status? Absolutely. So, Jefferson Burdick collected what amounted to over 300,000 items of printed ephemera during his lifetime. And he was an avid consumer of printed ephemera of all types. And ephemeria refers to collectibles, especially written and printed items that weren't meant to be, say, useful in the long run. So give us some examples. That included postcards and posters and trade cards. And um, as he was collecting in, you know, the 1910s, 20s, 30s, up until his death in in the 1960s, he amassed an enormous collection of baseball cards. I can see that. And baseball cards stemmed from the tradition of the trade card or the business card. And when he was collecting this material, he was collecting it because he simply had a passion for the illustration on these cards, the graphic design. He, He was interested in the history of printing techniques. That's a really good point to bring up. Not all collectors will buy your goods because of personal nostalgia. That's the motivation for folks like Bruce, but other people are looking for attractive items that they can see as art. This ties into what Bruce was saying, but we're looking for items in mint condition. If you find any collectibles you think you can sell, make sure that they're well-preserved. Or if not, consider getting them professionally cleaned. After all, when selling an item, you want to put your best foot forward for buyers. Um, The legend is that he never actually attended a baseball game during his lifetime, he wasn't actually a big fan of the sport, um, even though he's now known as the father of baseball cards. That is so crazy to me. Imagine being a famous figure in sports history without ever having seen a game, let alone played it. He just had such a passion for the printed material itself. So there's probably some story. I mean, how did he start collecting? Sure. So Burdick was born in 1900, and he wrote later in his life that he started collecting when he was around 10 years old. So that would be around 1910. Well, with this guy, the collector gene definitely kicked in early. And he wrote about how his father smoked cigarettes. And in 1910 and around that time, tobacco companies were the largest producers of trade cards and baseball cards. It's hard to imagine a baseball card popping out of a cigarette carton nowadays. Wow, things have really changed. And he wrote about how he would ask his father to buy specific brands of cigarettes so that he could collect the baseball cards that were inserted into the tobacco packs. And that's how he began collecting baseball cards and other types of ephemera. All right. I can't imagine many little kids being interested in the type of cigarette brand their parents smoked, but... Kids do some different things when it comes to hobbies. So, Allison, when baseball cards were first created, they were closely tied to tobacco. But that all changed when a certain player raised a stink about the association. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, 
I think you're probably referring to Honus Wagner. And Honus Wagner is not a very well-known name today for being a great baseball player, which he was, but his name is more closely associated today with his baseball card. And so around 1909, 1910, his image was used on a baseball card that was part of a larger series called the White Border Series, which is extremely popular with collectors today. Okay. To all you collectors out there listening, make note of that name. And the story goes that Honus Wagner insisted that the production of the cards featuring his portrait stop after about a hundred or a few hundred um, cards using his image were, were put into production. And there are a few different reasons that people attribute to his insistence that the production stop. Some people think it's because Wagner didn't appreciate tobacco, uh, excuse me, tobacco marketing uh, their products to children since children were the primary collectors of baseball cards. He just thought that was wrong. But other people think that Wagner wanted to be compensated for the use of his image because during that time, baseball, baseball players weren't paid for use of their image in the production of baseball cards. So there's a few different theories about why the production stopped, but because it stopped, um, that resulted in his card from this white border set being extremely rare. And for that reason, it's one of the most sought after baseball cards among collectors today. So if you can get your hands on a Honus Wagner card, you could be set for life. In 2016, a rare Wagner card sold for $3.12 million. Wow. And that record was just broken last year by Mike Trout, or more accurately, a Mike Trout card was sold for almost $4 million last year. It's incredible to see how much value people place on these things. But at the same time, I guess it makes sense. When you're holding an old baseball card, you've got a real piece of history in your hands. Okay, next up, we're going to talk more about the historic verdict collection. So go ahead, grab some peanuts and Cracker Jacks and get ready. This is something you're definitely going to want to know. There's a certain feeling of nostalgia when you're holding an old baseball card. You've got this piece of history in your hands. Speaking of history, Allison, just how old is the Burdick collection? We have baseball cards that date to the 1880s, which are among the oldest baseball cards in existence. Clearly, he was an experienced collector, but what can, say, new collectors learn from this guy? I think one of the things that made Burdick a successful and well-known collector was his pure passion for collecting As I mentioned before, he collected over 300,000 items of ephemera over his lifetime. That's a huge number. And he collected these things just because he loved them. He wrote about them really beautifully. Um, He published on them. He kind of gathered the circle of fellow collectors around him. He had all these collectors in his orbit that he would talk to about collecting. It was just a, a real passion of his. Yeah, I can see that. Passion and a social circle. That makes sense. And if you don't want to reach out to other people ahead of time, who will hear the good news of a discovery that you made? So if you're rummaging through your closet and you find a priceless card and you want to tell someone, I mean, no one wants to break the good news to a chorus of crickets. 
So, Allison, Jefferson Burdick was sitting on a multi-million dollar collection, but he decided to give it all away. Why did he do that instead of just selling them? You know, baseball cards, in terms of their monetary value, the value really spiked in the 1990s, which was decades after Burdick died. He died in 1963. So I don't think that he honestly could have even anticipated just how popular they would one day become. Oh, so he didn't even know they were worth a fortune. I think for him, he didn't really care very much about the monetary value. He was so enthusiastic about collecting. And so he was more kind of, you know, interested in it for, I think, the, the, the game of it in some ways. That does make sense. It seems that for many collectors, it's the thrill of the chase that gets them going, kind of like a modern version of an adrenaline rush that our ancestors got when they maybe took down that woolly mammoth. I think for him, it was just a hobby that actually ended up becoming kind of a, one of the central activities of his life. What's really great is that his hobby is now free for the whole world to see. Well, as long as you make the trip to New York, of course. He approached the museum back in 1947, but he had an enormous collection. Plus, back then, museums really didn't see the value in mass-produced art for the public. They really focused on art that was geared, say, towards the upper classes. At that time, most art museums probably wouldn't even have accepted Burdick's gift, right? A. Hyatt Mayer, the curator, did accept the gift. However, it was under the condition that Burdick agreed to catalog and organize the cards into albums because for Mayer, looking at these, you know, hundreds of thousands of cards and boxes, it was very overwhelming for him to just accept the gift and, and know what to do with it and know how to, you know, catalog and organize them. I couldn't imagine someone coming up to me and saying, hey, I've got almost a half a million items for you to organize. Go ahead, get to it. <laughs> wow. I don't even know what to do with the thousands and thousands and thousands of images in my photos. So he he tasked Burdick with doing that. And so beginning in 1947, Burdick began organizing his cards into albums. And the albums are organized by the product type. So, for example, tobacco or candy, the type of product that produced the trade cards that Burdick collected, and by date. So they're roughly chronological. And Burdick spent around 15 years adhering his cards into albums, and the albums are now in the Mets collection and stored among, you know, our Leonardo da Vinci drawings and our Rembrandt prints. So, you know, we, we value them for the same reasons we value any, you know, any number of examples of works we have in the museum's collection. Wow. 15 years to organize. That's an interesting mental image you paint, a beautiful Rembrandt sitting there hanging next to a 100-year-old baseball card. But I think that's an image some people might not be able to really understand. All right, we've established that old sports cards can be valuable. There is the nostalgia. Some of these cards represent powerhouse players who are long gone. When you hold an old baseball card, you've got a little piece of history in your hand. But what is the artistic value of these cards? I wonder if people are ever surprised when they see a piece of sports memorabilia hanging so proudly beside a really famous work of art. I mean, what exactly is the artistic value behind the collection? You're absolutely right that people are often very surprised to learn that the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which has this world-class collection of art objects, also has this collection of baseball cards. 
the, the two founding, founding curators of prints and photographs, they were really forward-thinking curators. They understood that these cards had value because they told you stories that were left out of the histories told by objects like painting and sculpture and drawings. And when it comes to ephemera, ephemera was collected by all sorts of people. And so baseball cards are a really good example of that. People with maybe without means to collect a Picasso painting, for example, could collect baseball cards. The cards really do fill in a gap in that way in telling a different history. So it's kind of the alternative to, let's say, um, to painting. Um, painting is obviously, you know, a very kind of refined and specific type of, of medium that has specific functions, but um, commercial lithography is used specifically for printing commercial products. And so if we don't collect this kind of work, we don't have any way of telling that story or learning from that history. Well, we've both taken a deep end into the historic appeal of sports memorabilia. All right, so let's take a peek at the present day. So amid this pandemic, baseball cards and memorabilia sales are just booming. I read that the sales of sports cards are especially lucrative. Now, according to Sports Collectors Daily, sales of baseball cards were up 50% in the last three months compared to the last three months of 2019. Mike Trout cards have seen the biggest boost in sales. But if you've got a card of any player in the Baseball Hall of Fame, you're still in luck, especially if you've got a rookie card. Basically, think of cards like vinyl records. The more rare they are, the better chance that you have of reeling in the big bucks. It's no secret that sports cards have enormous appeal. And Allison, you get to spend your day surrounded by baseball cards crafted so many years ago. They're small, they're colorful, they're artistic snapshots, really, of history. So what's your favorite part of working in the Mets print department? You know, I've become very fond of the baseball cards. I think one of the reasons that I've become so interested in them in particular is because they're a category of collectibles that are very dear to people. I've spoken with so many collectors who have stories about collecting baseball cards as kids. So many people come up to me and say, oh, I collected all of these baseball cards, but my mother threw them out. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's horrible. I bet they're kicking themselves now. Imagine how much money they just threw away. I didn't think that they would have value. That's just a story I hear over and over. But it, it, there's clearly um, a very kind of deep personal connection that people have specifically with baseball cards. I think in part because baseball is such a popular sport and plays such a kind of large role in this country's history. I think you're onto something there. That's the enduring appeal of baseball cards. Almost 200 years later, they're still going strong. Sure, they look very different than when they first came out, but everything changes. Culture, technology, audiences. And remember those virtual audiences I spoke about earlier? One thing's the same, the classic American love for baseball. Allison, thank you so much for shedding some light into baseball cards and taking some time away from your busy schedule at the Met. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. I hope that hearing about this has got you guys and gals just totally pumped up. There's so much valuable stuff people have laying around. Beanie Babies, stickers, video games, retro gaming consoles, even super soapers, that's right, can make a pretty penny. If they're old and in great condition. But wait a minute, what if there's a fire in your home? What would you take? What would you leave behind for the flames to devour? Well, next up, we're going to speak with a million-dollar collector who almost lost 
everything. He's a famous sports memorabilia collector who's going to give you the inside scoop on collecting, how to find items that bring in the cash, where to sell them, and what he did to succeed. He'll also explain how he dealt with the threat of just losing it all. Stick around. I'm really saving the best for last year. So we've learned that collectors go to some extreme lengths to pursue their passions. Some, like Bruce Pascal, will design a beautiful home office to suit Hot Wheels cars. Others, like Jefferson Burdick, will collect until they've amassed just a mountain of goodies. Others, like our next guest, will tattoo their favorite athlete into their skin. Now, Sean, let me just get this straight in the beginning. You actually have a tattoo of Wayne Gretzky? (laughs) Yeah, I do. Quite a substantial one. That's Sean Kalk. He's been called the Wayne Gretzky of Wayne Gretzky Collectors. But you don't have to go to his home and check out his impressive collection to know he just loves hockey. This guy loves hockey. You can just take one peek at his shoulder where the greatest hockey player of all time is just etched in colorful ink. So, Sean, tell me a little bit about your love of sports. Have you just always been a hockey fan? Oh, yeah, 100%. I absolutely love the game. Um, I love everything about the game. I love the business of the game, uh, the speed of the game, you know, everything about it I always have. And, you know, I, I just really think a lot of the game, the sport itself. Did you start playing when you were a kid? Yeah, I started playing it when I was about five years old. And I grew up in eastern Canada and I played uh until 1980, we moved to Alberta, and I was a small kid growing up down east, but I was always the tiniest kid in the league. And we moved out west, and the first year out here, I joined hockey again, and I was, I seemed even smaller then, and I was actually scared, <laughs> believe it or not, and that's why I quit hockey as a 13- or 14-year-old, because I just feared feared the size of the kids I was playing against and uh, I gave it up and I picked it up again when I was a young adult uh, when I first started my career post-college. I'm really glad you didn't give it up. I bet it must have felt great when you picked up the sport again, kind of like revisiting an old friend. Yeah, it was it was kind of really interesting because, you know, I I had missed all of those formative teenage years playing the game and, and then I went out as a 20-some year old with adults who had continually played the game. And um, it was an eye-opener. I was nervous. It was exciting. It was fun. And it just felt really good to be back, to be back into the game and to be part of it again at a new level as an adult where you appreciate things differently. You do it for different reasons, you know, things like that. For sure. I'll tell you, I've never been a real sports fan, but I can certainly appreciate everybody who is. And as I understand it, you've got quite the collection of hockey memorabilia. How big is the collection, really? Well, right now I've downsized my collection a lot, but at its height, my gosh, I had 400 of Wayne's game-used hockey sticks. It's it's a staggering number, right? Most collectors aspire to have one because it's such a big item, and I had 400 roughly. Um, and they spanned, my stick collection spanned right from junior hockey, you know, as a 19, 18, 17-year-old, right up until his last game in the NHL and some of his post-retirement games as a coach and, and whatnot. Okay, that's a ton. I'm guessing there was even more than that? I had many pairs of his skates. I had probably 18 pairs of his gloves, uh, at least a dozen jerseys. I had his equipment bags. I had the odd trophy and everything that was his through his career. I had I had so much stuff. 
I even had one of his cars. The first time Wayne came to see the collection, I put it on display in Edmonton, and um, it took two trucks and two trailers to transport the collection. Oh, you have to tell us, what was Wayne's reaction when he saw the collection? Um, I think the biggest thing was that he was, he wasn't shocked that it was all out there. He knew it was all out there. He was shocked that one person was able to bring it all together. It sounds like a magical experience being able to just walk and talk with your own personal hero. Oh yeah, for sure. We, we spent an hour going through the collection item by item and talking about how and where I got them and talking about some of the history associated with them and things like that. So it was an amazing, an amazing opportunity. I felt like I had totally succeeded in my collection just because I was there walking through it with him. Like that, that was the, the top of the mountain. And it was an amazing hour um, because, again, he had sincere interest in the items and, and how I managed to get them. I can't imagine what that would have felt like. I mean, both of you, it's got to feel pretty satisfying showing him all these different items that marked different milestones in his career. Oh, absolutely. It's quite the thing to see it all laid out, you know, in the chronological order I had it laid out in it. Quite the storyline. And how much was this collection worth? Oh, my. Uh, millions. Uh, you got to think I had hundreds of sticks and they sell between 3000 and I think the most I sold one for was 25000 so just do the math on that, staggering number just in sticks. Jerseys for as much as $325,000 each. Staggering numbers that, that certainly add up. I guess it makes sense when you take into account just how big your collection was and of all the items you've ever had. Um, was there one particular favorite? It's not what you might think. It's not a jersey. It's not a stick. It's nothing like that. It's the photo albums I have of all of the experiences I've had through collecting, the times I've been with Wayne, the the candid photos, um, the photo album of when I played hockey with him for a week in Phoenix in 2005 or six, whenever it was, uh, the pictures of him and I on the bench together, him and I on the ice together. That's that's not replaceable and that's mine. I experienced that. So that's if, if the place was burning, I tell people what I would take was my photo albums. And I know you're speaking from experience. You were personally affected by a huge fire a few years ago. Sean, tell us a story about what happened that day. And did you lose anything valuable? Well, I actually didn't lose anything in the fire. But uh, in 2016, our region experienced an amazing wildfire and 2,600 homes were lost. And it was a fire that was 4,000 square miles inside, in size. It was huge. Boy, that must have been just terrifying. Um, our city was evacuated for a five-week period. And when our evacuation call came, I was at work in a meeting. And my wife called me and said, you got to come home. We're being evacuated. So I come out of that meeting and I looked up in the sky and it was like Armageddon. It was like we were in an inferno. It was insane, the change that occurred from the time I went into the meeting an hour before to when I came out to that call. It sounds almost surreal. A friend of mine in Northern California just lost his home, everything, in the latest fire. But as I told him, hey, you know, you got your wife and your two kids, so life is still pretty darn good. But tell us, what happened next? I beelined at home, and my manager at the time came behind me because his region wasn't being evacuated at the time, and he knew I'd need help. So when I got home, my wife had a suitcase by each kid's room, and she told him, you have five minutes. Pack what's important to you. What did you do? I went to my office 
and I had two hockey bags and I put them on the floor and my manager was with me. And I started literally ripping open display cases and throwing things at him. Literally, like I was throwing quarter million dollar jerseys at him like they were rags because I, you know, I, I, I envisioned losing everything we had. And my mission was to put the most valuable things in that bag I could because they're liquid and I could sell them and rebuild, so to speak. That was my thinking. Well, you probably had to do some quick thinking, right? So we literally filled those two bags as full as we could and we evacuated. And uh, so I turned my back on a substantial part of my collection, thinking it was gone. And uh, we left with two hockey bags full of stuff uh, worth a fortune, but um, paled in comparison to what I turned my back on. I can't imagine how that must have felt. I mean, in the long run, you didn't lose anything. But at that moment, you didn't have a clue. That must have been gut-wrenching to know that years of your life could have been just burning away in a fire. We did not lose anything. Our home was saved. Uh, The fire in our area stopped about a block from our house. What a close call. Even though nothing happened, it's still scary to know how close you came to losing everything. Well, almost everything. Did this incident change your attitude at all towards collecting? Well, the one thing that it did is it opened my eyes to the fact of how easy it is to go from a lot to nothing. Even though I didn't lose it, I honestly, for the first several days when we didn't know if our house had burned, assumed we had lost it all. I can see that. And um, this type of stuff isn't easily insurable, especially in Canada. The amount of overhead involved in cataloging and assessing the values of and and the expenses of it just aren't worth it. So most people don't insure their collections, including me. I understand. A lot of times people prepare for the worst because it doesn't occur to them. After all, nobody can predict a fire. But as I always say, and everybody says, it's always better safe than sorry. So, Sean, you realize just how easily you could lose your entire collection. How'd you handle that? What'd you do? So the realization of having millions of dollars of my family's money tied up in a collection that at the end of the day was just a collection and didn't mean much to, to you know, to my family or where we were headed. I, I, I come to the conclusion that it's just too much tied up. It's just too big of a risk of my family's wealth to leave in memorabilia. And where did that realization take you? So I went down the path of, you know, downsizing substantially, selling off a lot of the stuff and just keeping more items that were tied to my experiences that I've had through collecting and and things like that. And, And that's how I pared it down. It just really opened up my eyes to the potential of what I could have lost. So does that mean that you've permanently downsized? Well, yeah, the the stuff that I have now is, is kind of the extent of what my quote-unquote collection is in terms of Gretzky stuff. I'm continuously buying and selling stuff to other collectors, you know, on the business side of collecting. So I'm, I'm always brokering things for people and helping people find things and just taking good deals when they come by and flipping the items to, to make a buck kind of thing. Because collectors always need to collect. It's in our blood. We need something to chase. So... A couple of years ago, I actually started to focus on collecting some vintage investment-grade sports cards, and that's what I spend most of my time chasing now is cards. Well, that's certainly a great investment. Our last segment, we went over all the different ways that sports cards are valuable. 
it's good to know that you can also insure them. I bet that gives you a lot of peace of mind. I mean, if a fire strikes, you're prepared. But I really like what you said. Collecting is in your blood. When did you first discover that you had this like so-called, I guess you'd say, collecting gene? I remember being in grade kindergarten or grade one, and I went to school, and another kid brought a whole bunch of old coins to school and gave them to me. Now, right or wrong, they probably shouldn't have given me the coins, but I went home with these coins, and I was enamored uh, you know, at the thought of how old these vintage coins were, and that's when I became a collector. I started chasing coins at that point. And I dabbled in stamps and I dabbled in cards and it went to autographs and memorabilia. And now I'm back to cards. So you're always staying true to your roots. I like that. Once you get that bug of chasing and acquiring and owning the bragging rights to the ownership of, that stays with you. Once you're a collector, you're a collector for life, it seems, and you need to be chasing something. It's really good news for anyone out there who's looking to sell. There are passionate collectors out there who want to buy your items. So make sure that you don't give up. Keep searching. Keep putting your goods out there. Sean, what's your advice for folks who find an old Wayne Gretzky jersey, say, in the back of the closet or in a garage? Or let's say they find any valuable sports trinket. What should they do? Well, I mean, the key thing is authenticity because the entire industry and hobby is plagued with fake items and fraudsters. So the number one thing is is knowing your source and getting provenance on an item and knowing how to authenticate it. And that's what I spend a lot of time doing, authenticating. You know, I've gained so much experience owning the Gretzky stuff and studying it over the years that I've become an authority on authenticating what to look for in, in true game-used uh, items and not what some fraudster has put out uh, out of his basement kind of thing. So the key is authenticity. Outside of that, really. Just about everything out there that's authentic is desirable to somebody, and it all has a value. And it's just about knowing where your buyers are, what your you know your your purchase price should be, so that you can make a buck on the flip side. So it's one of those things that comes with experience. There's no manual, there's no book. You just have to engulf yourself in the the industry slash hobby. And, and learn as you go. Uh, watch the patterns. Look what people want. Look look for the buying patterns and the selling patterns and, and learn from it. I've been hearing that the demand for sports memorabilia has gone up since the pandemic. What do you make of that? One thing that I, really struck me is when the world, the economy hasn't been good in a while anyway, and then COVID came along. And people were losing their jobs and job security was questionable and things like that. I publicly said the sports memorabilia business will crash. Everyone will sell off. Everyone will liquidate because they need the money. They don't have jobs. They're afraid of the future. And they're going to want to liquidate that asset and get money in the bank. Well, that's a pretty bold statement. And I never made a more incorrect statement in all my life because since COVID and, you know, the slowdown of the world and the economy, sports memorabilia has skyrocketed. And the only thing we can attribute it to is, well, several things. One is boredom. People weren't traveling. They were at home more. They weren't going out. So they had more time to look to their hobbies. Because they were home, they weren't going on vacations anymore. 
they weren't eating out at restaurants anymore. In a lot of cases, they weren't commuting to work anymore. And they had more disposable income instead of less. And they started buying things up with this disposable income now. I, I, I had so many people say, well, I'm not going on a vacation this year, so I have $5,000 to spend. What can I buy? Um, and the other thing is the people on, on the higher scale of investing and buying memorabilia are typically with deeper pockets. And they've seen such a turn in the actual economy and their everyday type investments that they're looking for more tangible ways to put money into something and see a return on it down the road. So you've got people that probably weren't um, in the market for a $200,000 jersey six months ago that are deciding that right now that's probably a pretty secure investment and they're buying at that level. So there's a whole bunch of things that came into play lately that can show you how the market fluctuates and changes. And of course, sellers should also keep up with the court of public opinion. If a sports team just snatched a hard-earned victory, people might become excited. They might want to buy a trinket like a jersey from a team member or an autograph. Or they might be willing to pay higher prices than usual. That applies to players too. I mean, did an athlete just star in a movie? His rookie card might double in value. Basically, there are so many factors for people to do track of when they are looking to sell. Sean, what's some other advice that you have for new sellers? Uh, but if, if you're that person and you have an item, you need to be very cautious because there's a lot of vultures out there. So you may approach a sports memorabilia store. A lot of people don't know where to turn, so they'll go to the local card store. And that guy sees the significance of the item that the person brings in and sadly offers them pennies on the dollar for it, which is still a big number, and they jump on it. Well, they've just sold a $100,000 jersey for $4,000 and thought they did well. So you have to know who you're talking to. Ask a lot of questions. Go online. There are tons of Facebook groups dedicated to Michael Jordan or Mickey Mantle or Wayne Gretzky or card collecting. Do some research, get on there, talk to people, indicate that you have an item, you are not looking to sell it because then people are going to be, if they think you don't want to sell it, they're going to be probably more honest with their assessment of what you have instead of trying to buy it out from under you. So just talk to the right people. Don't make quick decisions. You got to do your homework. Um, ask for references, ask for people to talk to, because the hobby can be very helpful if you're just someone looking for information. That's terrific. There are also lots of different websites and apps you can choose. But like Sean said, be on the lookout for vultures. I've recommended a few resources for you at commando.com. So be sure to do your research and don't let the bad guys get in the way of your fun. Right, Sean? Uh, sports memorabilia is a, is a fun environment. It's a fantastic community a fantastic networking um, community. Um, you can have a lot of fun with it, especially if you're passionate about an athlete or a sport. Um, it gives you something to focus on in a world that has too many negative things going on anyway. So if, if you aren't part of the sports memorabilia world, I'd encourage you to get online and look into it. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's a great community. Uh, you don't have to spend a lot of money to collect well and to collect big. Um, just find something you like and, and go with it. It's all about the enjoyment. 
So you've been collecting for some time. Has collecting improved your life at all? Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I claim to have an amazing life anyway. I love, I love life. I love where I am, my family, my situation. But the one thing that sports memorabilia has brought me is just a plethora of experiences that I couldn't have had in any other community, in my opinion. And it has brought me so many fantastic friendships and relationships that just aren't replaceable. Um, so many great friends have been, been made through collecting and through the hobby. And that's a very key and important thing for me is uh, the relationships. And that's it, folks. I'd say that's a terrific note to end on. That was Sean Koch, a.k.a. the Wayne Gretzky of hockey collecting. Thanks so much for coming on this podcast, Sean. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it as well. We've heard a lot of great stuff so far. Tech, toys, and sports. They could all be your ticket to the big leagues. And by that, I mean big money. Always remember that great things can come in small packages. I'm talking tiny toys perfectly preserved in these little original boxes. Pristine baseball cards at the bottom of your elementary school pencil box. You name it. There could also be some old tech you could polish up to make a king's ransom. If you're looking for some apps where you can sell old tech, I've got you covered. To sell a tablet, a smartwatch, phone, or computer, head to commando.com where we have a whole list of helpful apps that will make selling a heck of a lot easier. But first... You want to spruce it up a little bit before you put it up there for the sellers. Use disinfectant wipes, lint-free cloths, and disinfectant spray. You want something with at least 70% alcohol content. And whatever you do, do not use soap and water, paper towels, or vinegar. Actually, you don't even need working tech to make money. If you've got one of those old Atari games or a factory-sealed Nintendo cartridge, you could make anywhere from $10,000 to maybe even $100,000. There are also valuable radios from the World War II era, retro gaming stations, and so much more. I would say the world is your oyster, and you know me. I have a complete wanderlust. I love to travel the globe. But we're not leaving the house, right? So let me leave you with this message instead. Get off your butt, get off the couch, turn off Netflix, and go hunting in your house, your relative's house. Who knows what you're going to find? Wasn't this just a great podcast? I know that you loved it as much as I did. So don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. So this way, whenever we release a new podcast, you're like one of the first people to know about it. It will be downloaded even when you're sleeping. And speaking of podcasts, as you know, this is not the National Kim Commando Show radio show podcast. You can get that over at getkim.com. It costs you just a few bucks a month but you're getting the best show in the entire universe about everything digital. Well, in my humble opinion, of course. And then you get the webcast, you get to get answers to your questions on the Commando community forums, and a whole bunch more. We also offer discounts for military vets, service personnel, and seniors, so there's no reason for you not to go check it out right now. You get 30 days free over at getkim.com. I want to give a big thanks to our guests in this two-part episode, Bruce Pascal, Alice Brudnick, and Sean Koch. And thank you so much for sharing your insights and expertise with all of us. And I also want to say thank you to Serena O'Sullivan for her work in scripting this podcast and getting it all together. And another person who deserves his chops is Mike James, our production wizard, who keeps everything going smoothly. And a shout-out to Cassie Zimrick, our show producer. She does a great job, too. So thanks to everyone who was part of this episode, especially you, our listeners, because otherwise the only people who would be listening are our parents. 
And always remember, you can stay up to date in the digital age by downloading my app. It's available on iTunes and Google Play. Just search for Commando with a K, of course. That's K-O-M-A-N-D-O. I'm America's Digital Pro, Kim Commando, signing out for now. I'll see you on the radio.